Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. Talk about living the dream. While in her early 20s, Deborah Mellon, my guest today, met the man who eventually became her husband. Even though he was from Italy, they initially moved to the States, but eventually decided to live life under the Tuscan sun. That was more than Deborah ever could have wished for until that fateful day in 1989. While she and her husband were driving on the Autostrada, a truck driver who had fallen asleep at the wheel slammed into their car. The accident left Deborah with a severe spinal cord injury. She spent weeks in the hospital as doctors fought to keep her alive, but eventually she had to face the sobering reality that she'd never walk again. Not only did she lose the use of her legs, many other vital life functions were impacted as well. And then, two years later, her husband died. And Deborah moved back to the States, Florida to be exact, where a surgeon turned her on to Shake a Leg Miami, an adaptive sailing and water sports center. Deborah began sailing for the first time in her life, an experience that impacted her and eventually the lives of many others, thanks to the Impossible Dream, a nonprofit organization she created. So much more to talk about with this accomplished mover and shaker. So let's meet and get to know Deborah Mellon. Welcome, and thanks so much for joining me remotely today. Thank you, Sandy. It's a pleasure. So talk about your past. How is it that a woman from the States, not that this has never happened before, wound up meeting the love of her life in Italy or in the States? No, I met him in the States. I was a student at NYU and living in the village. And he had come, he was a photographer and he had come from Italy to um, take some courses at um, SVA and just to bum around. Visual arts for those who don't know. And just, you know, a, a travel, travel around the States, experience New York. And, and we just met haphazardly, you know, in a cafe or something like that. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And you hit it off. And, and we hit, hit it off. Was he planning to stay in the States? He wasn't planning to, but he did. So um, he stayed in the States until around 1984, I think. We went to go live in Italy in 1984. And um, we went back to, he was from Tuscany. We went to Tuscany and um, we, had ha- we had a loft in downtown in Tribeca at that time. And we rented that out and we rented a house in Tuscany and we started to build a beautiful life there. And then one day we were on the highway and we had this awful car accident. Before we get to that, I want to talk some more about meeting somebody from another country and getting very involved with someone. What were your plans? You went to NYU. What had you hoped to do upon graduation? My plans were to work in media. When I graduated NYU, living in the city, I went to a school school called Global Village, which was a school for video. And later on, it became connected with the new school. So my plan was to work in journalism. I didn't have it all that clear, but that's what I thought I'd do. 
Mm-hmm. And I also, at that time, my family, my father had a business in New York City. He is a gem and fine jewelry dealer, and he needed some help. So I went up there, and at the same time, I also fell in love with my family's business. So you had a lot of irons in the fire. Yes, always. And obviously a lot of options, right? Yes. So you thought that you might give up doing video work to take over or certainly No, I didn't, you know, I didn't have any ideas like that, uh, taking over power. It was just something I loved. Uh-huh. So I still stayed with my video work and, and, you know, doing projects. I was a PA on a lot of shoots and things like that. And then when they needed me, I went up there and I also started teaching myself about gems and about especially fine antique jewelry, estate jewelry. Mm-hmm. And I just had, I had a real passion for that also. And I was fortunate enough to be able to really pursue both of both of them. Sort of both passions. Both passions, yes. It's interesting because I also am an NYU graduate. Did you go to the School of the Arts? Yes. Yeah, as did I. And so at some point, what did you see yourself doing? You know what? I didn't really have any big goals. I wanted to live in the city. I wanted to work in video. Um, I wanted to to go to school and learn editing, which I did at this global village. I was in love. I was having a very good time living with my husband for the first one. We weren't married, but living with him and, you know, able to also make some money working um, on 47th Street in the jewelry business. First of all, what was your husband's name? Raul. And so the two of you connect and hope and you live together. And what was he pursuing? He was pursuing photography, art photography. So he came from a family in Italy that everyone for the last two or three generations in that family were photographers or had photography shops. So he was much younger than the rest of his siblings, and he grew up in photo studios. His brothers had a business, and they um, were commercial photographers. So they had large studios where they'd set up, you know, one room with a truck, one room fully set up as a, as a, a living room, and they would photograph. And he worked with them, and that's how he learned his trade. And he wanted to branch out. He didn't want to be doing commercial photography. Uh So he was an art photographer. Now, was his goal basically to stay in the States and build a career for himself there? That is what he tried to do. Um, We were able to purchase a loft in Tribeca. He was able to get, I don't know if you know, at that time, there was AIR status, which was artists in residence. And there was um, the board of the city of New York. I think at the time, Bess Meyerson was the head of that board. And um, there were certain buildings in lower Manhattan that went from commercial use to living, living and working use. And the only way that you could live or rent one of those lofts was to be able to have an AIR, an artist in residence. 
And so he was able to do that. So we had a loft we set up. There was a studio. There was a dark room. Um, I had a little editing studio set up there. And we were on our way to living this dream as artists in Lower Manhattan. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, drugs came into our story. How so? My husband became addicted to drugs. And it became very hard on us, and it became very hard on me. Mm-hmm. And um, honestly, the only way to save anything was to leave New York City. So that was one of the major reasons that we also left, was to move out of the environment. To A major move to go back, for him to go back to it. Yes. How did you feel about doing that with him? I I was fine with it. I just wanted to save his life, basically, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, honestly. And I loved Italy. And honestly, I had a real affinity for Italians, for Italian cooking. Before we moved there, I had already basically learned the language. It came really easily to me. You know, part of me, like you said, the Tuscan dream under the Tuscan sun, So that was very attractive also. But really, it was about getting out of the environment. He couldn't do it in New York. Right. And and also, I mean, we looked for it. It was very difficult. It was very difficult. So you were were you both in your early 20s at that time? No, Raul was nine years older than I was. Okay, so it's determined that you're going to go back. We got married here. We got married here. Yeah, we got married in 1983. We actually, boy, Sandy, I'm telling you all the all the secrets, honestly. That's true. But, you know, I actually married him for his green card a few months after I met him. Ah, okay, okay. And I never told anyone in my family about it. Mm-hmm. I might have told my brother. I can't remember now. And so... We were living together and my parents were like, you know, get married. And so we we had a second wedding and we faked it. And so my parents never knew about that. So it's fair to say that you and Raul kind of had a, a good life here, drugs notwithstanding. You both were pursuing your dreams? I would say so. Mm-hmm. Honestly, Sandy... I don't know what my dreams were at that time. I was in love. My dream was to be with, be with Raul, you know. I didn't have very specific goals. I was finding myself, mm-hmm. honestly. Mm-hmm. Because you were probably one of the first of your friends to go, right? To get in yeah. to get in yes, I was. Uh-huh. uh-huh. So here you are, you and Raul doing your thing until it got a little dicey with the drugs. And then it was determined, we better get the hell out of here. Yes. Okay. So you move to Tuscany and you move in with his family? No, no, no. Because we rented, we had sublet our loft. So we were able to, we rented a house of a friend of ours in the country outside of Florence, Uh in the countryside. So for the first year we we lived there. Uh Then... We were there for a year, then we moved to another place, and we stayed another year, and then we decided this works for us. 
Mm-hmm. So we decided to to sell our loft in Tribeca and buy something in Italy. And that's what we were in the process of doing when we had our car accident. So that took us like from 1984 and the accident was in 89. So we were five years working everything out. Uh, that, so you had a good five years. You, you we were, had a great five years. I'm curious, how were you received by his family? They loved me. Okay. <laughs> his brother used to say that I was the best part of Raul. Oh, isn't that nice? They loved me. And um, I was brought up in a Jewish house, household, mostly cultural. My parents were both Holocaust survivors. And I never thought of myself as particularly um, religious or anything like that. But I grew up in New York. So around all people that looked like me, more or less. Mm-hmm. Raul's family were Jewish, strangely enough. And he didn't identify it with it at all. But when I got to Italy, I needed to, I needed a little bit of my culture, Jewish culture. Mm-hmm. So I participated with them a lot and and Raul got closer to his family through me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the two of you were making it work. And speaking of work, you were both working and you had a good life, right? Yes, yes. Until that day in 1989. So take us back to that nightmare. So that day in 1989, it was it was the Jewish holidays. And um, Raul's mother. Yes, um, yes. So Raul's mother was with us for Rosh Hashanah. <laughs> I believe it was on Yom Kippur. So I had to go to Parma, I think it was. I, I had just come from London. I actually saw this friend of mine, Vicky Klein, you might know her. <laughs> and I went to London on a jewelry buying trip. And so I came back and then I was going to do a show, a jewelry show in Parma. And I was going to take the train there. And there had been some really strange things going on with the trains at that time in Italy. People were drugging people on the train and, you know, just stupid stuff, crazy stuff, stupid. And so Raul said, you know what, I'll drive you. Let's drive. I'll drive my mother back. Raul's mother lived in Livorno, which is Leghorn in English. And so we got in the car. We drove his mother home. We dropped her off. And then we were driving. And then I don't remember anything else. Like I don't remember anything from like 20 minutes before the accident is the last thing that I remember. Mm-hmm. And the next thing you knew... You woke up in a hospital. Yeah, I woke up like three weeks later in a hospital. And I subsequently found out that my husband pulled me out of the car. And he gave me mouth to mouth. Uh Saved my life in that way. And then he, you know, there were no cell phones or anything. Right. So he saw an ambulance going on the opposite way uh, on the autostrada. And he got in the in, in the road and he stopped them and they took us. They took me. He had some injuries. They sent him somewhere else and they took me to the nearest trauma center. 
that in and of itself on so many levels, I, I can't even, I was going to say impactful. That just seems so weak. You're in a country that is not, I mean, you've lived there for a couple of years. Yeah. It's not your home. And did your family come over? The accident was like one in the afternoon. Noon. I had actually had an appointment to call my father because we had found a house to buy and renovate. And he was going to help us from the sale of our loft. He was going to help us to transfer the money. And I never made that phone call. Mm-hmm. And um, so the accident was like somewhere around one o'clock in the afternoon Italian time. And by the next morning, my brother was in the hospital in Genoa. He had flown over. He flew. He got he got on a flight because at one o'clock in the afternoon, it was much earlier for my family in New York. So he was able to book a flight that evening and come over. And then my father and my mother came the next day. So you were basically comatose for a yes. week? Yes, yes. And then what happened when you woke up? I wasn't shocked. I couldn't speak because I was on a respirator. So I couldn't speak. And they let my father come in. What I remember is my father asked me my social security number to write it down mm-hmm. because no, they didn't, you know, my head went through the windshield oh, and they did not know about my brain. Mm. So that was like a really big concern. And I realized that, and I did know my social security number. I don't know how I processed it. I, I see myself waking up all bandages broken hands, broken everything, and my legs there. And I realized that I didn't feel my legs. Then everyone kept telling me, it's swelling, it's swelling, because they don't know. In the beginning, it could be that, you know, when the swelling goes down on on your cord and something stops pressing on your cord, you could possibly regain some movement. Right, right. And so for months, really, I was believing in that. And the thing was, is I had so many other injuries that were more life-threatening than the paralysis. Like what? Well, I had a punctured lung. All my ribs were broken. Jesus. Um, My entire face, the orbit of my eye. I had a broken wrist, broken ankle, broken collarbone. For me, the scariest part was the respirator. I was just scared. And, and you mean to tell me, as you rattle off to me, all this fucking nightmare that you went through, Raul had nothing? He was driving. He had some, you know, lesions and gashes on his head and face. But Raul was not wearing his seatbelt. Okay. I was wearing my seatbelt. Mm-hmm. And at that time, it was lack belt. We were in a Range Rover. We were in the safest car we could be in. Mm. And at that time, it was lap belts only. And they they believed that the seatbelt broke my back. The worst place in the car was the drivers. Because um, another car, the truck that fell asleep, he banged into a, a van trailing, a circus trailer in front of him. 
and that jackknifed and it went on top of us. Oh my! And the truck went into the side of us, my side. That went on top of us, and my husband jumped over towards me, which was the only place to really be alive. Mm. So between and he was a he he saw it coming and he was able to do it. So here you are in this, and nightmare just doesn't even seem close to describing this. Finally, wake up, see what has happened to you, and then. <laughs> What was the prognosis? Did they think you were going to make it? They thought I had no chances. And when I woke up, by then I was going to make it. At that point, as a family, all to have goals. You know, the first goal was to wean me off the respirator. Um, I, I had a chest tube. We wanted to get rid of the chest tube, but in the end, I flew with it. And the goal was, you know, within like six weeks to get to get me to New York. Mm -hmm. And that's what we did. So I think it was like six weeks after the accident, I was flown on a stretcher with doctors, my parents and Raul. My brother had left really as soon as my parents got there because I had a um, sister-in-law that was pregnant and about to give birth. And the goals were to get to the best rehab hospital there was, you know. And at that time, my family had chosen Rusk, part of NYU. Yes, Institute, yes, hugely famous. Yes. Mm -hmm. So then everything started, you know, once my vitals were fine and I was alive, everything started to, okay, you know, rehab. And in rehab, you know, I had to learn how to sit again. And that was another six months. Uh-huh. In the middle of all this, I had to have a very big surgery on my face. And that was devastating to me. Yeah, reconstructing your face? Yes, yes. And it was very difficult. And it was very difficult. And I was very angry at everyone for a while because no one had told me how bad it was going to be. Mm. And um, it was very, very difficult. And then it was getting discharged from rehab and becoming an outpatient and slowly learning how to live. But but as I said in the introduction, you wound up in Florida. I wound up in Florida because there was a place called the Miami Project to Cure Paralysis. And um, we had found out about it. You were a candidate for that. Basically, the Miami Project is a lot of research on stem cells. And then there was a physical place where they did a lot of physical research with stimulation on nerves and other techniques, biofeedback, walking in braces. So I, you know, walking in braces. And I, I became a rehab fanatic. Now, was Raul still alive at that point? We came to Florida together the first time. Mm-hmm. And why did he not make it? Sandy, I never said this to anybody. He contracted AIDS. I can't even believe I'm coming out with all this, Sandy. I don't even know. So when we were in Florida, he started to not feel well. And he went to my neurosurgeon. He sent him to a heart person. 
and he didn't have insurance in the states, and it went fast. Mm, wow! Oh my God! Yeah. 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 Wow. What? 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 That must have been unbelievable to process. I, it was. I it, you know, I just, I don't know how I got through that. Right. Wow. To be quite honest. Yeah. Oh my goodness. But then on some level, and I'm not being dismissive, things turned around for you because I also said in the introduction that a surgeon turned you on to Shake a Leg Miami. Right. Sailing and Water Sports Center. So that was seminal in your life. Let's talk about A, what that is, and B, the impact it had on you and how you made it, quote, work for you. So when I was brought to Shake a Leg and I saw people in wheelchairs being helped on and off boats and sailing boats on their own, in the beginning when I lost the use of my legs and had to use a wheelchair, and I would think about all the things that I couldn't do anymore. And in Italy in August is when we have our summer vacations, right? The, the month of August, everybody is off. And we would always choose the most remote island. We would climb the rocks, the cliffs to go down into the water. And I loved this. I loved the ocean. I was always, I loved the ocean. And it was so much a part of of me. And I thought, okay, well, that's over. You know, like, how am I going to do that? That's over. And then I went to shake a leg and it wasn't over. They got me on a boat the first time and, you know, I got splashed and there was wind and, you know, I was a little fearful, but that was fun too. Suddenly I thought, okay, I can do this. And also I had stayed away from other people in the community and I, I've stayed away and until I've been doing what I'm doing now. I wasn't that involved in my community of people with disabilities. And that started to open me up, you know, to um, meet other people, to have humor between us and be able to get it to other people that got it got that part of it and so I found a little community there basically and then I was sailing for quite a few years I was sailing these boats that they have they're called freedoms they're 20 foot long sail boats and they had them set up that you couldn't go on with your wheelchair but you could transfer into the boat and you sit in a special seat and get strapped in, whatever, and you could be driving the boat. You could be at the tiller. You know, yeah. you could be at the helm. Mm -hmm. And I loved being at the helm. I started racing, you know, doing some local races and things like that. And it just started to fill me up in my life. And then about 10 years ago, I had heard about a young man his name is Andrea Stella. He is from Italy, and when he he's quite younger than I am. And when he graduated law school, I believe it was, he went to Florida to Miami on his own for a vacation, rented a car, and and he got shot. He got what? Shot. He got shot. It was they don't know if it was a gang. Nobody. They nothing was stolen from him. They don't know if it was a gang initiation. He got shot 
and so he was in Florida and he made it and he made it back to Italy. And in Italy, he put together a catamaran. He was a sailor and from a sailing family. And he had this catamaran and he brought it to the States. And he and I had become friendly. We had common friends and things like that. And he invited me on his catamaran out of New York City to go on a trip through the Chesapeake to South Carolina. And I had never slept over on a boat, really, or anything. And I said, I don't know. And he said, look, it's mostly off the coast. So if you don't like it, you'll be able to get off or whatever. And and my mother had died the year before. And my father had already passed. And I don't think if my mother was still alive, I would have been able to do it. (laughs) So I said, yes. And it changed my life forever. So this experience for you, which was such an incredible trigger, is how you gave birth to the impossible dream? Yes. So what I learned on that boat was about being part of a crew and being part of a family and everybody working together. We were just four of us for three weeks and it just felt so right to me. And I felt like, oh my God, I have to do something so everyone else can experience this. You found meaning for your life. I found meaning. So I went back to Miami And I met with Harry Horgan, the founder of Shake-A-Leg. And I said, Harry, got to build a boat. We have to build a boat. We have to build a catamaran. You know, we have to build a boat for Shake-A-Leg. I want to do this. And we met with some boat builders and nothing really went well. And then I found out about the impossible dream. And the impossible dream was about 10 years old at that time. She splashed, I think, in 2002. She made her first voyage. The boating community are building more boats that have easier access, but the Impossible Dream was built from the ground up to be wheelchair accessible. So there's no aftermarkets. There's nothing is added on. Nothing is adapted. The shape of the boat, everything in the boat was built for someone from a wheelchair to be able to live on that boat and drive that boat independently. Uh And for me, you know, something that in my years in a wheelchair, something that drove me crazy is design, how things are designed and how The disability, you know, yes, I'm physically disabled, but the disability also comes from our environment. Every time I have to go somewhere, I have to really think and check it out and find out, am I going to be able to get in? Is there a bathroom? Is there this? Am I going to be safe? And our communities have not thought of this for us. And there's something called universal design that is design that works for people with all abilities. And the impossible dream is the most excellent example of universal design that there is. She, in, in this boat, this little boat, we go up and down the coast every, and you can see it because you come on this boat. And not only is the boat completely accessible, 
the lines of the boat and the and the performance of the boat are beautiful because of it. So when I found out the Impossible Dream was for sale, I got very excited and um, I wrote a letter to the owner who was a paraplegic sailor who had um, sailed in the Paralympics, an English man named Mike Brown. And I went to England. I I was in Europe and I called Harry Horgan, the founder of Shake Leg. I said, meet me at Heathrow and let's go see this boat. So Harry came and Andrea, the Italian, he came also. I saw the boat and I cried and we met the boat builders and it was an incredible experience. And I purchased the boat and brought it to the States. What year was that? That was 2013. Now you've got a boat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it was at that point, or you knew even beforehand, what you were going to do. Um, I wanted to buy the boat for Shake a Leg. You mean like make a donation almost? Yes, exactly. Uh-huh. Like donate uh-huh. the boat to Shake a Leg. Uh-huh. But the boat, first of all, the boat needed a lot of work. The boat was 10 years old. Me wanting to donate it to Shake a Leg was like lovely from my heart and everything, but it didn't make any sense. Now I understand that. The boat lives at Shake a Leg in the wintertime. She has a permanent home there. You know, I never imagined that I could do anything like this, like have a foundation and that you were going to reinvent yourself. Until this, you know, like I went back into my family's business. You know, I was trying to to recreate the same person that I was in a way. Recreate. I was I was trying to have that same life, the before life, and I was never happy. Mm-hmm. I always mm-hmm. felt less. Mm-hmm. I never could get back to that person. So obviously it was, that was a catalyst to say, yeah, I, am I mean, I didn't realize it, but it wasn't very conscious at the time, but now I'm very clear and I found myself wow. and it gave me courage to do so many other things. You provide this experience for other physically marginalized people. The Impossible Dream has a lot of different parts. This will be our eighth year. And We take five months and we go from Miami to Maine and back. And we stop at about 20 or more ports, cities. And we now have relationships in those cities with rehabilitation hospitals, disability organizations, veterans organizations. And so we come to your town and we, we take groups of people, day sailing, and we can fit as many as 24 people. 12 of those can be wheelchairs and you're comfortable on the boat. And we go out for like two or three hours. And a lot of times we're bringing people out of a hospital. Hmm. It's interesting because a, another piece of it, moving the boat requires a crew. So we also have a volunteer. We have a captain in the first mate, but we have volunteer crew members who are crew members with disabilities. So they, they'll they stay on the boat anywhere from 
three days to four weeks, depending on what leg we're on. And when we get to places where we're taking out patients from from rehab hospitals that are newly injured, or something really beautiful happens because those crew members are also on those sales. And there's a communication that happens. And introducing these younger injured patients to seasoned people like myself, we work with a lot of different groups. So we're taking people out like for two weeks, you know, one day, yes, one day, no. It takes five months to do the trip. And then leaving the boat in Florida. And then the boat stays in Florida and it needs a lot of work. In Florida, we would do like out of shake the leg, two or three community sales a week. Deborah, as we wind down this incredible story, I can't imagine that even though this is you've been doing this for a bunch of years now, that it still doesn't give you pause in terms of what you've given birth to and how powerful the impossible dream really is and what an incredible public service it's provided. How does that make you feel? In the 30 years that I've been injured, there have been some people that have told me that being injured is the best thing that happened to them because it changed their life. And I would think, God, you know, that's such crap, you know, bullshit, you know. And, you know, now I get it. I meet people now that I never would have met if I recreated my old life. I meet people that open my mind and blow my mind. I can't imagine now going back. Yeah. Feeling defined by that disability? Yes, being defined. And honestly, it's okay. I am completely connected with my disability and with my community. And um, I don't really want to go back to where I was, not before 1989, obviously, you know, but where I was, you know, in the early years of my um, Mm -hmm. injury. Mm -hmm. Wow. So powerful, Deborah. So explain to our listeners how they can get in touch with the impossible dream, how they can make that connection for themselves. You can go onto our website, which is www.theimpossibledream.org. Or you can email me directly at Deborah at theimpossibledream.org. And we also have social media pages. So we have Facebook is the Impossible Dream Catamaran. And the same is for Instagram. And the same is for a YouTube channel. Mm -hmm. If you'd like to come and come for a sale or come visit the boat, just get in touch with us. And last question. Do young people take advantage of the impossible dream as in children? We love to have children on board, actually. And so, yes, they do. At the risk of deifying you, Deborah Mellon, holy cow, what you shared with the world. It's overwhelming. And yeah, I'll go back to impactful. And I can't thank you enough for sharing your life story and your passion And how's this for a shitty pun? Continued smooth sailing, Deborah. That's good. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure, Sandy. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. 
I'm Sandy Klein.